Sometimes I'm asked why modern writers are needed if Dostoevsky was already there. Uh, in such cases, I answer that Dostoevsky could not have known everything that will happen in the 21st centuries. He spoke of the struggle between good and evil, yes, but it was assumed that in his time it was clear what is good and what is evil. Hello and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? Yes, that's this podcast. Heavy things done lightly. We look at philosophy and theology, history, current events, and we do it through the lens of something we call the old world, new world divide. Today on this show, it's kind of cool. We have a Russian novelist, not only that, a Russian best-selling novelist. Eugene Vodolotskin is joining us right after I'm done with this. He talks about Loris, his best-selling book. He talks about the aviator. He talks about time. Is Russia West East? Or is it new? Or is it old? And then what is paradox? Lots of other things on today's episode. This is episode 41. This is Watar bringing you Eugene Vodolotskin. So hi, everybody. You're back on Watar, and today we're blessed, and I'm excited, and if you can hear my voice, I'm nervous, because we're welcoming Eugene Vodolaskin, who is a Russian author and the author of Loris, a book that we have everyone in our on our First Things team read. Uh, he's also the author of other books, which we'll get into, uh, but he's joining us from Russia today, uh, St. Petersburg. Eugene, hello. How are you? Hello, John. Nice. How are you? <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm excited and a little nervous and very excited to uh, have really, I think, one of the great authors um, really, really living on earth right now, writing about topics that are super important for the soul of, of, of men and women. And for a conversation you have in your book for regularly is about what is reality and how does it work? And today that fits nicely into what we're doing on our podcast. So let me start by introducing you to folks who listen to our uh, podcast here in America. This is uh, Mr. Vodolotskin. You were born in 1964. Uh, you're a Russian scholar, but also uh, a novelist. You graduated from the philological department in Kiev, Kiev University, and uh, eventually did postgraduate courses at, at the Pushkin House. And you've been awarded uh, various fellowships, I think, at home and abroad, and have written a marvelous article. This is where I, I really decided I wanted to try to get you on our show. You wrote a, a marvelous article in the magazine First Things. Um, you've won the Alexander Solzhenitsyn Literature Prize in 2019 and considered one of the most contemporary, important contemporary Russian writers going today. So some of the books that you've written, we won't name them all, are Soloviev and Larianov, forgive me, um, Loris, uh, The Aviator, House in the Island. And a number of other books. And as I mentioned earlier, Loris became a family favorite. And when I left my job to run 
First Things, which is our nonprofit, Eugene, uh, Loris became one of the books on our reading list for the men and women who go into the field and spend two years working in uh, unique neighborhoods, impoverished neighborhoods, helping local people. And the reason for that is Loris takes you on a journey into the soul. And so that's you. I hope I didn't leave anything out. Thank you for your introduction. Uh, uh, so I have nothing to add. Okay, super. Let's start with a question um, about time. So it seems like in your books, this is for sure in Loris and the Aviator, but I think in most of your writing, time seems essential on some level. And what is interesting about time and movement through time uh, is that there's something about change that when you get into it in your books, it's intriguing. So I wonder what is time to you? What is going on with the notion of time in your books, especially in Loris? Well, uh, the time, so the first thing I have to do is to beg your pardon for my poor English. I uh, don't believe in my English. Uh, that is why I try to write down a few lines. Uh, and so if you are not against, I will look a little bit uh, with my left eye to my text. By the way, maybe it is typical for Russian writers because Nabokov, as he spoke on TV, one can see a paper on his table. Maybe it is a little bit more than a help in, uh, during the uh, speaking, but it is so maybe Russian writers more believe in written words than in oral one. I see. Uh, uh, and uh, let us, uh, so after this obligatory words, um, I would try to answer your question. Super. So about the time. Time is, so I will try to, uh, to begin from the very beginning. Time in the ancient history uh, had no beginning or end. I mean, so-called pagan history or the history before uh, Christianity. Mm -hmm. It was a circle. The circle was a symbol of the ancient time. By the way, uh, I have read a mm, very interesting book of American professor William Adler, Time Immemorial. Mm -hmm. uh, he, there he writes uh, very interesting about the time uh, in history and the most ancient history. In Judeo-Christian history, time has a beginning, the creation of the world, and has its final point that is uh, uh, that sometimes is called the end of the world. So. Uh, Christian history is not only horizontal movement. On this scale, we see vertical lines uh, everywhere. This uh, is an exit into eternity. Mm -hmm. And time is open for a Christian. History is a person's movement from eternity 
before his time, his historical time, and to eternity after this time. So uh, it is a um, famous expression, history is a way from eternity to eternity. Wow. History is a person's... So when a man was created, there was no time. It appeared after the fall. God uh, gave man time. Time is finiteness. Uh, I try to to uh, speak this word. Finiteness. Finite. Yeah, finite. 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 Mm-hmm. Finiteness. And the finiteness is death. So, therefore, speaking about the meaning of life, we cannot do without the meaning of death. Mm. And hence, without time. So, the gift to mankind uh, was time and death after the fall. Despite the fact that I talk a lot about eternity, the meaning of time is extremely important for me. First of all, without the idea of time, we could not speak with you today. Mm. So we tried to find out my time. Mm-hmm. Because uh, Russia has, as far as I remember, eight or nine time, time zones. zones. Time mm-hmm. zones. Mm-hmm. And I live in St. Petersburg and belong to Moscow time zone. But it is not the only point why the time is so important for me. I will try to explain my idea. Man was created as likeness of God. Mm. He has a free will in almost everything. He is not free only in one thing, the time of his arrival in the world. Here he does not choose. This just suggests that a special meaning is attached to the time of personal's birth. Uh, okay. uh, this is the field in which a person must work. The protagonist of the aviator, my novel aviator, loses his time and is transferred to another time. At first, it seems to him, okay, that it is not so scary that people in his old time are replaced by other people in a new time. But this is not the case. The meaning of this experiment is that everyone around us is unique. Hmm unique like time, and there is no substitute for anyone, no substitute. That is why all such things as traveling in time and uh, the ideas of cryonics uh, are, from my point of view, suspicious things, uh, Hmm. because it is an attempt uh, to substitute one time with another. And the tragedy of my protagonist is that he lost uh, his time, but he found that he can receive the new time. He can't live uh, in this time because time, it is the area of God. I see. uh, To make some uh, experiments in this field is rather 
dangerous. I would say more. The time in ancient times had a special meaning. For example, if we will read old Russian letopis or annals, we will see that each year has a description of events that took place mm-hmm. this year. For example, 1037, the Cathedral of St. Sophia was built in Kiev, and so on. Mm-hmm. But uh, suddenly we can see in year number 2052 was nothing. Why it is so? We called this uh, thing the empty years of Russian annals. By the way, we Russians have here good brothers in arms, uh, annals from Ireland. They also have empty years. It was very important that no one year will will be missed, that the continuity of the, of time will be preserved. And it is very interesting that as Peter I make a reform of the calendar and of the style, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he substituted um, uh, the, the style um, reckoning, years reckoning from the beginning of the world. Instead of this, he put Anno Domini style. I see. But he he used the era, so-called Byzantine era. The difference between Byzantine era and African era was eight years. And old believers, it was a part of Orthodox community in Russia. It is. It was a great tragedy, this division. They used so-called African year. And these eight years, they didn't know where they are. So they made a sort of revolution uh, because they said, Peter is the Antichrist because he makes manipulations with time. The old believers said that the about old Peter. Believers, yes. And uh, he said that he added eight years that no one lived. <laughs> uh, and uh, so it was it was rather it was a very bad thing to do tricks with the time. So when the Russian historians, the medieval historians, say there was a year when there were no, there were no historical, you called them empty years. What's the significance of those empty years? Uh, the significance is the aim, or the goal of these empty years is to produce the line without interruptions. Oh. Um, that, by the way, the years were used mostly in Russia. In uh, Byzantine tradition, there were emperors. If, for example, a chapter in Russian annals is a year, so Byzantine chapter is uh, an emperor. And, uh, oh, okay. for example, and there you will find all the emperors, even those that ruled only one day or two days. Historically, they played no role, but uh, mystically, it was very, uh, very 
important that the role of the mm-hmm. emperors will be without any missing, uh, will stay without any corruptions. Mm-hmm. Each name, it is not just a name, not just a person, it is a mark for the time. Right. It's it's how we know we're in reality, or or, or it's how we mark that we're we're here. It right as opposed to the eternal clock, which which we're not. How should we say we're destined for eternity? But when we keep time, we're reminded of our mortality. Am I saying that right? If uh, we mean eternity, do we mean immortality? Yes. Uh, so, uh, yes, in Orthodox uh, tradition, we know such uh, an expression, the death is the birth for eternity. I think that's, yeah. I, but Eugene, this is very foreign to a certain type of thinking. So that leads me to a, a second question. On this show, on this podcast, uh, we talk about the old world and the new world. Uh, and for us, Americans, most of us who go and work overseas, we see there's some sort of culture that we call old world. And what we find is it's, it's a, it's, it's a group of cultures in Africa, for example, or in Southeast Asia or in Central America. We see that cultures tend to know themselves as old because they're not imbued with enlightenment values. And so we've come to understand on this podcast that there's such a thing as new world thinking and old world thinking. I wonder, and new world here being post-enlightenment, mathematical, scientific, rational. Do you think this is a, is this real? Am, am Am I describing something that seems real to you? Is there such a type of division in the way people think around the world? Or is this just odd? Uh, well, the expressions old world and new world in Russian history were used mainly in the context of the 1917 revolution. Ah, okay. okay. Uh, in particular, one song of that time sung to the music of the Marseillais began with the words, let us renounce the old world. Wow. One of the slogans of the revolution was the opposition of the new world to the old. Uh, This moment is played out in my novel, Justifying the Island. It is my last novel, which has been published uh, recently. The new was automatically declared good and the old bad. The futurism uh, was the heart of the communist utopia, which created the cult of the future. At the same time, if we take our common civilization, I mean common East and West, East and West European civilization, the futurism was not always the mainstream. The civilization of the Middle Ages was built in exactly the opposite way. There, the center of history lay in the past, 
not in future as it is as it was for example in communist utopia utopia mm. this center was the best the birth of christ and the course of history was seen as a gradual distancing from christ and deterioration it is my deep conviction that the era that we conventionally call the modernity by the way in russian literally it is called the new time okay is coming to an end it doesn't mean that a new middle ages is coming to the world we are talking about the return of some medieval forms uh which i wrote about in the magazine first things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. most likely there will be renewed attention to to traditional values this process will not be the same throughout the world due to the peculiarities of its development emphasized futurism in the communist period russia's turn to traditional discourse now looks more intense than we see in the west however the west is not homogeneous here either italy and poland for example are very traditional countries in these circumstances the terminology new world and old world loses its definiteness hmm. because in the era of historical changes the terms begin to be assessed ambiguously the concepts of old and new should be separated from the division west east it is something another mm. this division exists within the boundaries of european civilization to which not only western europe belongs but also russia and the united states now a dramatic moment has come in relations between the west and the east i try to be objective in my judgments but in my opinion russia was not the initiator of current cooling after the fall of the ussr under gorbachev yeltsin and putin russia consistently tried to unite with the west i would say that uh, uh, russia once i used such a, an expression that russia was like a woman that wanted to be married very much but uh, her wish was she was scorned we, uh, yes, we turned her uh, away nobody married her <laughs> and the desire was clearly expressed both in the level of people people were very protestant in russian 90s and even governments uh, d- different governments governments was that we had they were also pro western uh, but it wasn't supported and on the contrary new borders began to be created intensively this is not the place to find out why this happened mm-hmm. but i say this with sadness as a pro european and pro western person seeing this attitude russia abruptly changed its line it may very well be that the point of no return has already been passed and yet contrary to the obvious i do not lose hope 
that we will reunite it with the West. Mm. Uh, first, historically and culturally, we are close relatives. Secondly, we need each other. At a time when European civilization is losing its significance, we should be together. And uh, I am a historian. I'm very far from politics. Uh, I avoid to enter this area. If I speak about politics, I speak uh, about it just as about a part of history. Mm -hmm. It is a, I would say, present continuous of history. Mm -hmm. And uh, I see that even the Middle Ages, we were much more close to each other than now. Mm. We must remember that we are Christians, and uh, Christianity, it is one of the, of the most important features of European culture. I say again that America and Russia, they belong also to European culture. They are part of this culture. Right. Uh, not even belong, they, they are part. How do you see Orthodox Christianity in that most expansive story you just told? Is it old or does it bridge the two worlds? Can it survive in what you're calling modernity or the new world? What, what is your Russian Orthodox Christianity in that sense? I would say that I avoid uh, an expression Russian orthodoxy because, well, orthodoxy, it is a part of uh, Christianity. Mm -hmm. Orthodoxy is Christianity. Orthodoxy is not an ethnographical museum. Mm -hmm. And I know that some Russians, uh, they think of orthodoxy as a Russian faith, Russian Christianity, but it seems to me it is not correct position. Mm -hmm. So if, for example, I have to do with non-Russian Christians, with non-Russian Orthodox, I'm, I feel myself very good. Uh, I, I, I uh, like them because the people that initially didn't exist in this area. They see much more than those who were born uh, in this tradition. Mm -hmm. And that is why I think that we have um, the idea of Christianity or Orthodox Christianity, but I would say that uh, to speak of uh, Russian Christianity, it is something like uh, to speak about Russian mathematics, uh, okay. Russian physics, and so on. I see. Interesting. Let's move to another question about um, remembering or memory. Uh, one of my favorite notions from the ancient Orthodox East, and it's something you you play around in in Loris and a lot of your writings, uh, is that remembering from the Greek is to remember, to put things back together, sort of in reality, in, you know, 
in, in that way, it's the idea of the incarnation is God is being remembered in the communion. And in the New Testament, you see two types of remembering. And only one type is about thinking back or reflecting. And I think you play around with this idea in Loris and an aviator, and it's a joy. And I think for many in the West, it's an odd understanding. So what, what is to remember for you? What, what is memory? How would you describe that? In essence, a person has, has nothing but a history, a general history and a personal history, and history is memory. Hmm. When a person loses memory, he loses experience, and with experience, he loses his personality. Uh, the same is happening with the people, and the consequences are catastrophic. As you know, as I already said, that the circle was a model of ancient history. Mm -hmm. uh, I already mentioned history had no beginning and no end. From this point of view, the same reasons lead to the same consequences. But the model of Christian history is a spiral. And uh, events repeat themselves, yes, but on, and on a new level. Mm -hmm. And this is the basis of the so-called typolo typological exegesis. Christ appears as the new Adam and the Virgin Mary as a new Eve. Hmm. Christian exegesis, exegesis, uh, yeah. exegesis. Mm -hmm. produces hundreds of such pairs. I see. This is what I'm talking about in Loros. I developed the well-known idea that the Orthodox Divine Service does not simply remember the events of the sacral history. It lives them again. Mm. It lives them with a memory about the previous, uh, previous mm. or the first time of this event. All things made new. Uh, yes, uh, yes. Uh, and in a new situation, so he lives these events in a new situation, mm -hmm. if you want, if you like. And here is uh, here it is important to understand to what extent we are able to be Christians in our modern life. It seems to a very small extent. Right. Uh, but there is another type of memory that I write about in the novel, The Aviator. It is admiration of God's world, which is perfection, and every detail is of great value. My protagonist, Inokenti Platonov, is trying to resurrect all the details of the pre-revolutionary world in Russia, hmm. uh, which no longer exists. He keeps a diary in which he says very little about the big history. His memories are dedicated to various little things, smells, colors, sounds. This is also history. Right. Uh, in its own way, it is no less important than a big history. That's right. But it is not included in any handbook of history. Mm -hmm. 
It hurts Platonov that this very important part of the world disappears without a trace. Finally, there is what is conventionally called history lessons. In my books, I try to show that the lessons of history cannot be political, because political circumstances never repeat themselves hmm. in full, uh, which means that they will not will never lead to the same consequences. Does this mean that history has no lessons? No, it doesn't. Uh, these are simply lessons of a moral nature. Right. Uh, in the Middle Ages, this is exactly how the pedagogical role of history was understood. They justly realized that the history of mankind as such has no purpose. It consists of millions of wills. Only man has a goal. Only a person has a goal. Mm -hmm. The subject of morality can only be a person. A person and not a state, people, or humanity. Therefore, the moral view of history is based on a personalistic view. History was seen in the Middle Ages as a set of examples. Str uh, struggle between good and evil. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I, I kept thinking of the word icon toward the end there. It's a series. Morality becomes a conversation about people and about in, and that is that why the Orthodox East is always looking at at saints and hagiography to explain history. Is is that why that's an essential part of the Eastern Christianity? Yes, history is a very essential part of uh, Christianity as such. I would say not even even. Uh, only Eastern, but why it is so? The, actually, the Bible is a historical writing. That's right. In a certain sense. That's right. It is a history of people, and each uh, medieval historical writing is a little Bible. It is the diary of a folk. And uh, you know that manuscripts, uh, there were not, not uh, so there were a few manuscripts of annals. Uh, it was not uh, an evening newspaper that everybody mm -hmm. read. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody read them. They were reserved in monasteries mm -hmm. to whom spoke the analysts to God, not to people. Of course, it was possible to read it and somebody read the annals, but it was a conversation mostly with the God. Right. With God. What is very important here, the important difference between modern history and the history of the Middle Ages. You know, modern history, it is a horizontal view. That's right. And it is always biased. It is always a point of view of some party, some nation, some class uh, mm -hmm. or social group. If we we'll, uh, speak about the history in the Middle Ages, it was a view from heaven. Yes. Little example. 
Byzantine Hammerstolos Chronicle describes as Russians, they were at those time pagans, 19th century. They came to Constantinople and killed many people. They were very brutal. And this place was borrowed from Byzantine Chronicle to Russian Annal, Nestor Chronicle. Mm-hmm. It was a good occasion to choose something in this text, to change, sorry, something in this text, a little bit to put it under the censorship. But Russian analysts, they didn't touch this text. He was a Christian, and uh, he understood from this point of view that Uh, Russians were very bad in this situation, and he has no one word uh, to support them or to somehow to uh, propagandize, yeah, and change the words, yeah. He had only one dimension, good and evil. Hmm. It is a good example that medieval point of view was universal. Universal, I mean, uh, in area of Christian uh, civilization. Mm -hmm. It was universal. And modern uh, historical point of view is local and uh, can't be another. And political. And political. Political means local. Right, right, right. Right, and having to do with temporal power or the here and now. Yes. Yeah. Super. I think of this, and this is kind of leads me to another question. I th- I think of there's a dichotomy between sort of, at least in America, the spiritual world and the world I live in. You know, the world that God is I'm going to, and the world that I'm in. There's this dichotomy which sometimes seems false to me. And in, in your writing, especially in Loris, there's something about Loris that's disorienting. There's something about his existence that's paradoxical. Like it's 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 always both and at the same time. It's not one or the other. He's both a sinner and also a holy fool. It's just it's disorienting, I think, for a lot of people. But I think this is my question. Mm-hmm. Is the spiritual life disorienting or is it reorienting maybe? Is it meant, if we're on a spiritual path, is it meant to be disorienting? Like, whoa, what happened to me? Is that something like that happening? I would say that all the truths, they have many levels. And uh, the most, I would say, most difficult of them. Uh, The truth must not be obligatory, simple. Hmm. Uh, Some things are very difficult. And difficult things could be expressed only through paradox. Truth is is not, uh, is multidimensional. For example, I say, I like my people Best of all, it is my my greatest love, my mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I say, 
it doesn't mean that I like other nations less than mine. Right. It is a difficult, complicated feeling, but we must not try to simply fecate the things, the difficult things. And as to your question, of course, this way, the way uh, of the way to God has many difficult places. Uh, and as to saints, uh, we must uh, remember that a saint is not a person who has no sense. It is a person that can work with his sins. Hmm. And to a person who can, uh, whose metanoia uh, yeah. enough strong to to destroy a sin metanoia being the power of transformation or change is that right yes it is the change uh, of uh, in german hirn the mind uh, to change the mind okay yes mm-hmm. those who change their mind they change their behavior Yes. Could we jump down a little and talk about writing in Dostoevsky? Yes, of course. Because, you know, I'm not alone. Um, many people in the, in the West who are seeing their sort of Protestant world come out from under them, or in other words, there's a change in the way that Christianity is being understood in America now. When that happens, people begin to reassess their Christianity. And I know many people who start to read classics or they're, they're interested in artistry and they stumble on Dostoevsky. And there's something about Dostoevsky that is appealing to many sort of converts to orthodoxy and really just people right now. There's something harsh about him that's appealing, something rough, but you know, Dostoevsky's books, as you know, they, they tend to emphasize the dirty in order to explain what's clean, something like that. So who is Dostoevsky to you? Because I know a lot of people that love your books that say, oh my gosh, he's doing something that Dostoevsky was doing. That's a lot of praise for you, but who, who is Dostoevsky to you? So I will start with the author's goal. Yeah, yeah. The author, I'm not sure that an author, that an author should have a goal, well-defined purpose. The author must have a direction. Yeah. If So a well-defined purpose moves the text from the field of literature to the field of preaching. Preaching is an important genre, but if we are talking about literature, we need to use its tools. If literature calls somewhere, it uh, does so not by means of an imperative, but by describing reality. That is what you spoke about in Dostoevsky's case. And it is better if reader draws 
if reader actually reader not writer draws his conclusions right it is the contrast to reaching actually this is what happens in good literature i love dostoevsky very much he foresaw many of the misfortunes of the 20th century for example the novel demons is about this but it goes much deeper than the social dimension it is about the struggle between god and devil mm. and as you remember according to dostoevsky the field of this struggle is the human soul sometimes i am asked why modern writers are needed if dostoevsky was already there <laughs> uh, in such cases i answer that dostoevsky could not have known everything that will happen 21st centuries he spoke of the struggle between good and evil yes but it was assumed that in his time it was clear what is good and what is evil the peculiarity of our time is that it is no longer very clear to many mm-hmm. what is good and what is bad and in this situation it is a great challenge for every christian yeah he, the context same conversation good and evil but the context you're right is fundamentally different uh, yes and uh, actually dostoevsky yes somebody can say that you're right that he reflected dirty side of the life and its uh, better sides mm-hmm. and some sometimes his dirty sides are too dirty <laughs> uh, yes but still he understood the difference yeah. between these two areas and now and it is it is actually terrible that some that comes new ethic and uh, says france it is not bad it is good right right from now on it is good and some believe that it is good some that uh, it is bad and this relativeness is very danger yeah in some ways Dangerous. it's we're living in the chapter after dostoevsky's finished the demons it's the next chapter where the deep relativism is now our context and as a teacher eugene i saw as i got as i taught into 2010 11 12 you know up until right just a couple of years ago as a teacher i saw the conversation much harder to start the conversation about good and evil it wasn't that you couldn't have it you know, i taught 18 year olds i could have a conversation about good and evil but it was a much harder conversation to begin because there were so many different relative contexts each person felt that they had to define for themselves what good and evil was as if each of us had a different good and evil And so before you can even talk about 
good and evil, you had to have everyone weigh in on what their good and evil is. And there was almost no common vocabulary for what it was. That's, that's how my classroom looked. That's how the kids spoke. And so by the time you got into the depth of the conversation, by the time you got into, you know, the deep philosophy or theology, everyone was already tired. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I would say that. So if we'll speak about moral ethics in the time of middle ages, the ethics, so moral was based on not only based moral was, Uh, Christianity. Yeah, right, right. Uh, later, moral was also so people uh, that didn't that didn't believe in God, uh, they uh, still they had the same moral with those who believed because the influence of religious ethics was very strong. But now we see the birth of new ethics that has nothing to do with religious uh, ethics. And uh, it is something new. If you say to somebody, don't do it, the question why? Because it is bad. Who told you that it is bad? Is it? Is it? Mm. And it, one of the things we talk about is when that happens, it's okay, but culture becomes difficult. It becomes difficult to create culture in such an environment. There can be no unifying moral code. And I wonder how that ends. Who knows? doesn't have to, are you hopeful? Are you hopeful for this postmodern age? Does, is there hope in you? Like what, what inside of you gives you hope these days? as a Russian in St. Petersburg? So, uh, you know, <laughs> there are different types of hope. Right. Uh, so, we have a joke that such a question was put to optimist and to pessimist. Pessimist says mm -hmm. it would be worse. And optimist says it couldn't be worse. <laughs> and so... It couldn't be worse, right? Yes. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That's what I, I think I'm that person. I, I think I think negatively, but hope for beauty each day. I hope something like that. Yes, so, uh, but it was a joke. It is, it is not. Sure. I believe that, you know, history is a pendulum. Uh, it is a main principle for history. Mm. Uh, now, it is not the best position of uh, this pendulum, but history has its rhythmus and mm. many things, uh, good things that we lost will come back. Yeah. Amen. I think you're right. So can I, can I end up by doing, can I invite you? So, Our work led us to the Georgian Republic, and I fell in love with Georgia and almost just stayed there. And in so doing, uh, we threw the, the Supra dinner. Do you know the Supra? You must have had a Supra with Georgians before. Uh, I have had 
so thank you uh, for this invitation. I will be happy to come. Me and you want to come and we'll throw a party for you and then we'll introduce you to some people here yeah. in America. Uh, so once we were already in America and fell in love with your country, as Americans are a very benevolent people, I would mm. say, uh, while the Americans, it seems to me, are persistent in their search for God. Uh, they are not indifferent. It is very important. As for Georgia, this culture is very close to Russians. Yeah. Both in a deep sense and in the sense of everyday life. Uh, Russians appreciate the Georgian style of life. For example, a toastmaster is called in Russia Tamada. For myself, I can say that when I have a choice between several restaurants, I always prefer Georgia. Oh, you do? That's yes. So if we will have a Georgian party, our common Georgian party, I will be happy. This is great because as a part of our work, uh, we don't have offices, but we've we've been given a nice donation to start a, a little meeting place, a restaurant, where our theme will be the Supra and Kinkali and Hajapuri and, and Swadi and all that. And we're going to open it this summer. And so really... We'd love you to come, and we'll 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 do American things around a Georgian table in America. I think it would be quite fun. So that'd be great. Thank you very much. Yeah. So I just want to thank you again. You you were brilliant and wonderful with your English. I know you were worried about that. I think it will be fantastic. People will really like what you had to say, and you said it really, really beautifully. So thank you for uh, coming on and speaking and doing the, inv the interview in English, Eugene. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very much. For me, it was a great pleasure uh, because people that are so far from each other uh, can uh, feel love to each other. That's right. Uh, and uh, can speak as, Dost uh, do you remember Dostoevsky wrote? What uh, are Russian boys speaking about if they gather about God? So we are like two Russian boys spoke about <laughs> God. <laughs> you know what? Deep down, I think that is the joy that's just bubbling up now in America. Because people are feeling things fade away, I think many of us want to be like those boys that Dostoevsky writes about. And if it's not always God that we talk about, it's the things of God. And I think it's happening. And so I hope this conversation's part of it. Thank I, you. I hope I wasn't too, I felt very nervous. <laughs> Thank you for your patience with me. You're, Thank you for your patience. Yeah, it was wonderful. So, okay, guys, that's Eugene Vodolaskin, the author of Loris and Aviator and... I wish I had said Soloviev and Larionov. I can't say it still. Forgive me. Uh, and other books. And uh, he was on Watar today. Thank you, Eugene. And um, thank you, John. Let's keep talking. Wow. Shenis Gagimarjos. That's Georgian for To You, the Victory. And that's what we're going to be saying around a table. Let's figure out how to get 
Mr. Vodolatskin over here. Let's get him on a tour. Let's talk to folks about his profoundly interesting and really uh, groundbreaking stuff, his work, his writing. Very happy to have him today. Eugene, thank you. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. This is Watar. Why are we talking about rabbits? This is brought to you by the creators of First Things Foundation. We're a nonprofit. We send people into some of the world's most interesting and forgotten and impoverished places where we live for two years at a time, Peace Corps style. But we do projects a lot differently. Come join us. We're looking for someone right now to head to West Africa. There's a lot of ways to help. Tune in. Check us out at first-things.org. And most of all, keep listening. Nakvamdist. Hasta luego. Kambufo. Peace out. Dos vidanya.